I want to talk to you about a different word now as we look at God's word together. I want to talk to you about a French word, the French word pièce de résistance. It's three words in French technically, and though it it translates uh, specifically to main dish, the the phrase pièce de résistance can mean a couple of different things. It could kind of in one way, actually mean the icing on the cake. It could mean the signature dish. It could also mean like the, the, the main memory of a huge event. But pièce de résistance also has to do with someone's signature piece of work, what they're most known for, their masterpiece. And so in art, you would think of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel or Van Gogh's Starry Night or Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Or maybe if you're a music person or a film person, think Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, think Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, think U2, the Joshua Tree album. There we go, more contemporary example right there. This morning, I thought it would be appropriate for us to consider God's finest piece of work, his greatest achievement that we remember. And we do so especially because of the holiday that we have the week ahead of us. Thousands of people, if not millions of people, will gather this week to participate in a tradition that is thousands of years old. People will get off work early, travel out of state to find time to be with family in order to celebrate the Passover. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, millions of Jewish people will gather with friends, family, acquaintances to participate in a holiday that God commanded them to celebrate 3,500 years ago. And seeing how Passover begins this Friday night, the very same night we'll be here celebrating Good Friday, I thought it'd be appropriate for us to look at the text of Scripture where this holiday is prescribed. Because in the Old Testament, the Exodus event is Yahweh's pièce de résistance. So I want you to take your Bible this morning and turn to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. So we see the character of God. And as you're turning there, let me remind you, some of you are familiar with this story, whether from the Bible or children's class or the, the classic film, The Prince of Egypt, uh, playing with the big boys now, etc. cetera. Uh, and as you're turning there, I'll kind of drop you into where we are. Exodus chapter 7 through 10 describe the plagues. What is usually in the movies about a 90-second montage, uh, it's four chapters in the book of Exodus. And the plagues are devastating. You have bloody water and frogs and gnats and flies and boils and dead livestock and hail falling from the sky and locusts and then darkness. For four chapters, God is making the land of Egypt a sort of hell on earth, all demonstrating that Pharaoh... The greatest king in the world at this time doesn't hold a candle to the authority of Yahweh, that he is the one king who rules over every aspect of nature. And in this sort of nine-round showdown, Yahweh wipes the floor with him. It's not even close. The plagues are stunning. And yet in the Passover, Israel doesn't commemorate this event with toy frogs or fake boils at their Seder. They don't turn the lights out so dark so they can't even see their hand in front of their face. And the Passover is celebrated with a lamb and unleavened bread and bitter herbs. 
Passover occurs in Exodus chapters 11 through 13. And we won't read all three chapters this morning. I'm going to read you a short portion from each chapter just to kind of give us the big picture of what's going on. But I want you to see this morning is really what we just sang. That Yahweh, in his very essence, is a savior. Saving is not just something he does. It's who he is. And as we look forward to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday this week, let this remind you of the very character of God. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 11. I'll start reading in verse 1. It says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people, so that each man may ask him his neighbor, and each woman may ask him her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. And Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man, himself, man Moses himself was very great in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I am going out in the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the servant girl who is behind the millstones, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been before and shall never be again. But for any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may know how Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Turn now, if you would, to Exodus 12. Jump to chapter 12. Again, we're getting the flavor of these three chapters. Let's look at verse 29. Now it happened at midnight that Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Then Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go serve Yahweh as you have spoken. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have spoken, and go and bless me also. And the Egyptians strongly pressed the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We will all be dead. So, they, so the people took up their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in cloths on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. They had asked from the Egyptians for articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Verse 40. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it happened at the end of 430 years to the very day that all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be kept for Yahweh. For having brought them out of the land of Egypt, this night is for Yahweh to be kept by all the sons of Israel throughout all their generations. Finally, let's look at 13, verse 17. Chapter 13, 17. 
Now it happened that when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not guide them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God turned the people to the way of the wilderness, to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in battle array from the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall bring up my bones from here with you. They set out from Sukkoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh was going before them, and a pillar of cloud by day to guide them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they may go by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire pillar of fire by night from before the people. This is God's very word. Strong faith comes from a strong view of God. The higher your view of God, the more transcendent, the more glorious it is, the deeper, the more steadfast your allegiance to him will be. Uh, One author is credited as saying, It would be a strange God that by knowing him more, you'd love him less. We need to know God rightly if we're going to obey and love and have devotion to him rightly. And that's what the book of Exodus is really about. It's a book about knowing God. If you were to read through the book of Exodus today, just the first 15 chapters, particularly chapters 7 through 15, you would find again and again this phrase. Yahweh says, I will act so they might know that I am Yahweh. He wants you to know what he's like. And therefore, the book of Exodus becomes a book not of what God did one time, but it's a book about who God is at all times. It's a book about who the God is that you sing to, who the God is that you pray to, who the God is that you walk with throughout your day. Exodus is about that God. And this morning, what I want to particularly highlight in these three chapters is that it highlights God as a Savior. That God, by His very nature, is a Savior. I know college students, one thing that is often on your mind is food. I know, without the donuts here on Sunday, do you guys still do donuts on Sunday morning? Good, because some of you would die without that, that probably, if it didn't happen. And there's clever ways which you try to accumulate food. And there are many of you who can cook, if you have to. If forced to, you can cook. You can make grilled cheese, butter, butter, cheese, you could do that. My first recipe I learned how to make was rice, boil, simmer. There we go. Butter, salt, you know, plump. Anyway, but that's what we did. It's like, I, I, we could eat. You could cook things. So many of you have the ability to cook something if needed. But some of you are cooks. Some of you know who you are. Like, it's, it's not just that you can. It's, it's within your nature. It's a skill. You know what a lemon reduction is. You, know, you, you can look at the recipe book and go, oh, I could tweak that a little bit and I'll make something totally different, right? Some of you have that skill. You have that friend right now. You're allowed to look at them for a second. Uh, but that's, that's what this is. That's, that's, uh, that's the nature of it. Well, this book, the book of Exodus, these three chapters in particular, doesn't just show us that God can save. It shows us that he is a savior, 
It's who he is. It's why we could trust him. It's why you can trust him with your life if you haven't done so. Because by nature, a savior is who God is. And we'll consider that this morning as we look at these three chapters. Three chapters. We're going to look at three details I want you to consider. So if you're a note taker, these will be the three points for you. Three details from these chapters that we want to think about this morning. The number one is this. Let's think about the great escape. Let's think about the great escape out of Egypt. The people of Israel who were in bondage for 400 plus years finally freed from Pharaoh. Chapter 11 began with a warning to Pharaoh. God says, just as you killed Israel's firstborn, I'm going to kill your firstborn. And it's so devastating for you, and yet it will be so peaceful amongst the people of Israel, we read, that not even a dog is going to be heard barking. There's a distinction made between the two of them. And then we finally get, you could turn to chapter 12, we'll be between the two chapters today, well, mostly in 12. It says, then we get to the escape itself. When we read it in verse 29, that at midnight Yahweh went through the land and he did as he promised. He struck the firstborn of every single Egyptian. Uh, every single one of them, even their cattle, died. And there was a great cry as Pharaoh finally is humbled, who after plague after plague said, I will not obey to God, submits to the one true God of the world and obeys and humbles himself. What do we see about this escape? They leave quickly. Like they're, they're out of here. They're moving. It says verse 33, they go right away. They, they, uh, the Egyptians send them out quickly. Uh, we read in verse 36 that Yahweh gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they're leaving with stuff. I mean, they're getting gold and silver and possessions. They're, they're not going to just be these poor nation wandering across the wilderness. But because of the fear of God, they are leaving with wealth. And when you read verse 40 of chapter 13, or chapter 12, you have to read it with some gravitas. You have to remember that these people for generations have known nothing but the whip, labor, sweat, sleep, and a little bit of food. That's been their life as a nation. People have been born into slavery and died in slavery. And then you read verse 40. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it happened at the end of 430 years, the very day all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It's amazing. It's why the movies add a musical number at that point. Why? Because it's, it's huge. They've known nothing but bondage. And now they're free. It's done. They will never be under the bondage of the Egyptians again. The greatest power in the world... Pharaoh has been overthrown by the greatest power over the universe. God, Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. He has delivered his people showing he is the supreme king who rescues and blesses his people who otherwise could not save themselves. Now here's where I want to, we're going to get into the details of the, how he delivered them. But, but I want you to think for a little bit of where he delivered them. And I know you're thinking, well, promised land. That's not exactly what I mean. What I mean by is, it's not just what did he save them from, but what does God save them to? 
He delivers them out of something to place them in a position. That's important for us to think about here. What does he do with them? It's not just get out of trouble, but what has Israel now gotten themselves into? Well, let's look at chapter 12, verse 25. 12, 25. This is a, uh, this is, we'll look at the Passover meal in a second, but this is an instruction for why they remember this. Verse 25, it will be that when you entered the land which Yahweh will give you as he promised, you shall keep this new service. And it will be when your children say to you, what is the meaning of this new service to you? That word service could be translated as slavery. Now let's think about this here. The book of Exodus is about redemption, freedom, released from bondage. But it is not freedom for the sake of self-governance. It's not freedom so you can now go be whatever you want to be. It is not freedom to express the true you, who you are supposed to be on the inside. That's the theme of every Disney movie these days, right? I'm not supposed to leave the island, but Dad, you don't understand. There's a line on the sea that is, I don't know, on Moana, but you, you get it, you know, exactly. Right? It's all about self-expression, freedom to be who you truly are. No, no, Exodus is about going from bondage to Pharaoh to becoming servants of God. You come under his rule. His reign, if you read to the end, you read that they now live in his presence with him as their king living over them. You might hear that and you think, wait a second, that, that totally goes against everything I think and feel. That totally goes against the spirit of the age, right? Where you are supposed to be whatever it is that you want to be. In fact, the book of Exodus would be bad news on its surface, right? You're just going from one tyrant to another, Friend, if that's the way you think this morning, I want to show you why that's wrong thinking. Because God is such a better king. He's such a better ruler than Pharaoh. Uh, We think we need freedom, but the freedom we want is the freedom to actually be servants of the king. Let me show you. Go to chapter 13. Uh, I'll show you just one example of this, but I think it's important for us to consider. 13 says, Now it happened... That when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not guide them by the way of the land of the Philistines. Now let's stop there. Do you see the picture? In, in all the movies, it's, it's, it's Pharaoh guiding them. And the movies are kind of funny when you compare them with the, the book. But what's the biblical picture? The God of the universe, who spoke the universe into existence, who devastated the land of Egypt, is personally guiding the people he's redeemed. He's walking with them. He doesn't remove his presence from them. It says that he doesn't take them by the way of the land of the Philistines. Why? Because he knows they're not ready for war. You know, as a parent, one of your jobs as a parent, and for those that are leaders in the room that are parents, you could attest to this, one of your jobs is to know like what your kids can handle and can't handle. So my son Jude, sports junkie. If we turn on an LA Kings game before bedtime, he's just not going to be able to handle that. 
If I read him The Hobbit before bedtime, he will be asleep in seven minutes, right? It's, it's understanding what he can handle and what he can't handle, right? Well, God is so intimately involved with his people that as soon as he delivers them, he knows if I take them by the way of the Philistines, they're not going to be able to handle that. And so I take them a, a different path because I know where they are. It reminds me, this reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So he's a savior who knows his people, knows what's best for his people and knows what they will and won't be able to handle. Consider again, even the beauty of chapter 13, 21 and 22. He's going before them in a pillar of cloud by day. Verse 22 says, he did not take the pillar of cloud by day away, nor the pillar of fire by night. He walks with his people. It's such an evidence that he's better than the tyranny of Pharaoh. Pharaoh gives them no rest. Chapter 16, God gives them a day of rest every day. You find Pharaoh telling them they need to go collect their own straw. God is the one who provides food for his people in the wilderness. The book of Exodus begins with the nation of Israel building monument cities to Pharaoh, far away for his glory. The book of Exodus ends with God instructing Israel to build a tent so that he might live in their presence. Holy God transcendent, but he rescues people that he might dwell with them. It is, it is a better king to submit to. Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you think, you know, I'm kind of the captain of my own soul. I don't need to let anyone rule over me. I would tell you that what's true in Exodus is true in the New Testament as well. There's no one here who's master of their own ship. There's no one here who calls the shots in their life. Because John chapter 8, Jesus will say that whoever sins is a slave of sin. Now you might think, I have freedom to be what I want to be. Really? Try to go a week without sinning. And and the reason why you can't go a week without sinning is not because you lack self-control and you need more discipline and stuff. The reason why you can't go a week without sinning is because sin owns you. Sin rules over you. Sin holds, holds you captive. And yet Jesus says, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. That you could be released from bondage to sin and be who you were meant to be in Christ. True freedom is the freedom to actually be a servant of the Son. That's the freedom that's offered in the gospel. The freedom to be who God created you to be and walk with the God who created you. That's the good news that's offered here and we see it for uh, portrayed here in the book of Exodus. So that's number one. We got to keep moving. Number one is the great escape. That's what we saw there. Number two, let's, let's actually look at the Passover. Let's look at the Passover. We read these three chapters and, uh, and really we read all the narrative portions of it. If you were to ask what is the most important, it's actually not the plague. The plague only got two verses. There's two verses of God coming through and killing the firstborn. What is most important? Well, you just See it as you turn pages. You read chapter 12, verse 1, and you start reading instructions for the Passover. And it goes all the way through 1228. And then uh, if you look further, there's more instructions in 1243 to 51. And then chapter 13, 1 through 16, like the Passover event 
uh, Passover meal gets a bulk of the time in this passage. Instructions for here's what I want you to do on this night. Here's what I want you to do every night in the future. Here's who's allowed to take the Passover going on. It's, it's kind of the star of the show here. And we need to ask, okay, what is this holiday? Let's figure it out. So if we're going to figure out who God is as a savior, let's figure out this annual event he wanted them to celebrate and this event that led to their liberation. Let's look at chapter 12, verse 1 here. Chapter 12, verse 1. Let's, let's just try to figure out what it is that they actually did. It's pretty straightforward. It says, Now Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to apportion the lamb. Your lamb shall be a male without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. So here we go. Every household is supposed to have its own lamb. Perfect, spotless, without blemish. You're bringing your best lamb here. You, you don't bring whatever like mangy goat you have, and this one's been bothering me anyway. You, you bring what's best. And at twilight, on the night of Passover, you kill it. And it says, according to verse 7, you'll take some of the blood, you put it on the frame of the door, on the lintel and the two doorposts, and you're going to take that lamb and kill it. And then what you're going to do is you're going to eat it. I don't know if there were any vegan options here, and I don't know if lamb has gluten or not, so you could straighten me that either, but there was supposed to be a meal. And not just what they were supposed to eat, but even instructions on how they were supposed to eat. Now, what I want you to know as we notice these details is everything is pointing towards speed, haste, readiness. We're going to eat and go. If you've been to a restaurant with your friends, you know you need to go somewhere after, and, and the, they bring the food out, and you ask for the check with the food, so you can just kind of, you know, grub and bounce after. That's a little bit of what's happening here. Let me show you the details here. Everything is fast. So verse 8, verse 8 says, and they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, roasted with fire. Why? Because that's the quickest way to cook it. You're going to roast the whole thing. You're going to eat it with unleavened bread. For those of you who have made bread, there's nothing like fresh bread. Uh, gentlemen, get married to a girl that can make fresh bread. That'll help you out. But, but it, the point of it being unleavened is it's, it's quick. It, it didn't have time for the dough to rise. We're eating this quick. We don't have time to do all the preparation. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire both its heads and its legs, along with its entrails. This is all about speed. In fact, chapter 12, verse 46, uh, I'll just look ahead, not verse 46. Uh, it, it, says, it also says, no, you're not to break any of its bones, right? The reason why you don't break any of its bones is because that would take too long to prepare. You're just going to cook this thing. Not only that, but there's a, uh, uh, there's a wardrobe that goes with it. You shall not leave any of it until morning, uh, whatever is left over until morning, you shall burn with fire. That is no leftovers. Verse 11, you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, with sandals on your feet. 
with your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Passover of Yahweh. The point is they're going to eat quick because God's rescuing them tonight. And in an act of faith in the promise of God, they're going to trust that he's going to deliver them quickly by cooking the way he wants them to cook and dressing the way he wants them to dress because they are believing. We are leaving tonight. We read, I will go down through the land, verse 12, of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I will see the blood and pass over you. And there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Well, they do this, we read. Moses tells them to in verses 21 to 23. They do exactly what God asked them to do. And the result, as we read, God slaughters the firstborn of the Egyptians. But there's there's not even a dog barking amongst the people of Israel, protected by the blood of the land that he instructed them to do. Now, let's think more about this holiday. Did you notice at the beginning how critical to the identity of Israel this holiday is? We read in verse uh, 1, you can look back at verse 1 of chapter 12, we read that this is actually going to shape their calendar. Verse 2, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It'll be the first month of the year to you. So Israel, you ready? You know, you know how tied to the Passover event you are going to be. Your whole calendar is going to be oriented around the fact that you're the people I rescued out of bondage to Egypt. You're going to remember this event. And in fact, memory is what they're, was why they're supposed to celebrate it every single year. Verse 14 says, Now this day will be a memorial to you. You shall celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a perpetual statute. Verse 24, You shall keep this event as a statute for you and your children forever. And so year after year, the people of Israel are supposed to, in a way, participate again in the Passover. Why? Well, because inherent to who they are as a nation, they are the people who were delivered. It's part of their, it's part of what they're commanded to remember. Why are they commanded to remember this? Why every year? Isn't is it one time enough? Well, it's because they're prone to forget, as we are also prone to to forget. Psalm 106, I'll look at this, you can listen if you'd like. Psalm 106 verse 6 says this, we have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have acted wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not consider your wondrous deeds. They did not remember your abundant loving kindness, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his might known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up. He led them to the deeps as through the wilderness. But verse 13 says, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. Isn't that interesting? Israel would later walk in sin because they forgot the goodness of God. 
We read earlier about bitter herbs. They would put this, these bitter herbs on their bread. And even in you know, tradition today at a Seder, the children will ask, like, why do we eat bitter herbs? You know, Deuteronomy 16, the Passover bread is referred to as the bread of affliction. You know why it's bitter? It's supposed to be this annual reminder that Egypt was bitter. You might go, why would they need that reminder? Friends, do you realize how many times in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are thinking back to their time in Egypt going, man, in Egypt, we sat by you know, pots of boiling food and we ate leeks and onions. And they'll look back at their past life like it was something great. And the Passover is God's annual reminder, not just that he delivered them, but he delivered them out of something bitter. I think that's a good reminder for us, right? Sometimes we could think, man, I'm glad I'm forgiven out of that. But I sometimes kind of wish I could dabble in it again. Friends, sin was always bad to you. Sin never did one good thing for you. And we are to constantly remember that. Remember that we weren't, uh, uh, that we weren't in a good state before. This is even why the church today, why we do communion regularly. To remember who we are as the redeemed people. By remembering we're the redeemed people, it should cause us to act like a redeemed people. Two more questions about the meal, and then we'll be finished with this point. The other question is, who took this meal? Who took this meal? And for sake of time, what I'll read, it's in verses 43 to 49 of chapter 12. Uh, I'll, I'll summarize. It was every Jew was to take this meal. Every circumcised Jew was to take this meal. And if anybody wanted to join in on this meal, say a sojourner or a foreigner, they were allowed to. They just had to be circumcised. You might think that's quite an admission cost for a meal right there. But the point is, they had to demonstrate that they were devoted to Yahweh. That this wasn't just a one-time meal, but they were, they were all in. They were about the Lord. In fact, you could read, we read it in verses, or I skipped it in verses 36 and 37. It actually says that a mixed multitude exited with them. That would have meant non-Jews. Uh, th- this, was a, uh, this was a feast that could have celebrated by anybody devoted to Yahweh, even if they weren't Jewish, as long as they were devoted to Yahweh above all other gods. Just as a side note, this is why we think it's wise to be baptized before partaking in communion. Not a law, just a good principle. Take the one-time sign that associates you with the people of God before you participate in the regular event of remembering how God saved his people. Sidebar there for you. Anyway, let's keep moving through Exodus. Here's the last question we need to think about before we wrap up this point. What was it that they were remembering? Well, we were free, right? Maybe. Let's look one more time at verse 25. Chapter 25, uh, verse 25, chapter 12 says, When you enter the land which Yahweh will give you as you promise, you shall keep this new service. That's the Passover. It'll be when your children say to you, What is the meaning of this service? You shall say, Here it is, It is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh, who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but delivered our homes. Now, wait a second. This is one of those times where it's possible to read something in your Bible and not recognize something in your Bible. 
Every plague so far of the first nine, the only people under threat were the Egyptians. God said, I'm going to kill the livestock of the people of Egypt, but the livestock of Israel will be spared. Hailstones will fall on them, but the people of Israel will be spared. But notice, uh, it says, in the future, your children say, why are we celebrating the Passover? Moses tells them, it is the Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel when he smote the Egyptians, but he delivered our homes. What this is saying is that the reason the Israelites needed to put the blood on the door is because if they didn't, they would suffer the same fate as the Egyptians. This is the only plague that all people are at risk. Israelite and Egyptian. And so the firstborn of all the Israelites, their life is legit on the line, threatened if the people of Israel do not obey. And so what you have here is this Passover lamb dying in the place of the firstborn. You have a legitimate threat that if the lamb doesn't die, the firstborn will die. But if the blood of the lamb is on the doorpost, life will be spared. So they're commanded to remember that. And even as I say that, some of you are thinking, I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. So let's look at point number three. We'll call this the greater Passover. And I want you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You have heard this somewhere before. This is, this is the way I'd illustrate this. This is like a, an overture in a musical. Do you know what an overture is? It's the opening song where they'll kind of play. I'm not very musical, but they'll play all sorts of notes and riffs is what I'll call them uh, from songs later. So if you've seen Les Mis, you'll notice they keep using the same music throughout, but they just keep changing the words. Sounds familiar, but a a little different. Uh, Think Nessa, wicked, we deserve each other. Let the reader understand. Uh, But what the way to think about this is, is there's using same language here, blood of a lamb dying so that the firstborn are spared. Now, what I don't want you to think about this morning is think, ah, that connection exists because Petrus figured it out or I figured it out. That is not something that we notice. We don't notice a similarity between the Passover lamb and the greater Passover lamb. We notice it because the New Testament authors want you to see it. It's there because it's in the Bible. They want you to notice this connection. And so, if we were to look at 1 Corinthians 5, which we won't now because I have you turn to John chapter 1, but if you were to look at 1 Corinthians 5, you would see Paul referring to uh, Jesus as our Passover lamb. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, you see uh, Peter says, knowing that you were not ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, you're not ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. They're pointing to Jesus as this lamb who rescues us from the wrath of God. Look at uh, John 1.29. That's where I had you turn. It says, On the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and said, 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why does John call him that? Because he is functioning in a way like the Passover lamb of the Old Testament. That the wrath of God could be removed from you by trusting in this lamb through his blood. Turn, if you would, to John 19. John chapter 19. We'll look at verse 31. We'll celebrate this on Friday night. This is the account of Christ dying on the cross for our sins. It says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, it's Passover, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. They might be taken away. Let's break their legs so they can't prop themselves up, and everyone on the cross will already die. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first man and of the other who's crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen bore witness, and his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things, lock in here, for these things came to pass... In order that the scripture would be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. Now, not a bone of him shall be broken is in Exodus 12. And it's what Moses says. But he's not making a prediction. He's just telling them, eat quick, don't break its bones. So what does John want us to see here? Why does he say fulfilled? It's not a promise that's being fulfilled. It's, well, it's, a, it's a greater and fuller Passover lamb. It's that Jesus and his death on the cross is allowing the wrath of God to fall on him so that it wouldn't fall on you. That by his blood, the wrath that should be yours for your sin is fully absorbed by Christ. It's John saying that that God is doing in Christ what he did 1,500 years earlier, only different and better and more glorious. Not buying us out of bondage to a, a human king, but buying us out of bondage to our sin. Friends, the gospel was not a new trick. It's something that God had been accomplishing, that he had accomplished for his people 1,500 years earlier. Why? Because he is by nature a savior. By nature, he is one who rescues people through the substitutionary death of a lamb. It's who he is. Sometimes, as Christians... We find the world and the flesh seemingly ruling in our lives. And we begin to wonder, has God really forgiven me? I mean, I know he has, but 
I'm just so sinful still. The reason you can know that he has delivered you is not by looking in, but by looking to Christ, the Passover lamb. He has forgiven you if you trusted in Christ. That's what he does. He forgives all who trust in the substitutionary death of a lamb. For him not to do that would be very un-Yahweh-ish of him. It is who he is. If you've trusted in Christ, you are forgiven. Opposite is also true. You might think, well, I've not really trusted in Christ. But, you know, everything else in my life, from the teacher who raised my grade from a 40% to a 75%, to the coach who let me on the team anyway, everything else in my life has let me off the hook. One day Biden's going to forgive my student debt. Everything else in my life is screaming to me, you're going to be off the hook. And it would be very un ish of God to forgive you if you didn't trust in the Lamb. You should not expect that. It's not according to his nature. But... But maybe you're also here this morning and you've been here for a little while and you you see these people who love Jesus, you see the joy that they have and you think, I want that joy, I want that satisfaction, I want that understanding of who I am, but I know how sinful I am. And I just don't think that the God who knows who I am and the God who's this holy could actually forgive me. Oh, friend, he could lay all your sin upon Christ. He could tear up the certificate of debt that's against you. He could take all your sins and cast them in the sea and remember them no more. If you trust in the substitutionary death of a lamb, how can you know that? It's because it's who he is. God is by nature a savior. He always acts according to who he is. And because he is a savior, you could trust that he has saved you or you could trust that he will save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your son, who is our Passover lamb, who died the death we should have died, absorbing the wrath that should have been for us. Thank you, God, that we could trust you and that you're consistent, that the cross is not some fluke gimmick, but it's in line of who you are. Lord, thank you that our souls, as we sang earlier, can arise because of Christ and what it is that he's done, because we know that the Passover lamb has died in our place and all our sin has been atoned for. Lord, help us then to be faithful to you. Help us to see you as our king who has bought us and brought us to yourself. We give you all the glory for who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.